You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. It was the last day of school. Uh, Miss Crawford, I was thinking that maybe you and I can get together over the summer. I mean, it'll be legal. I mean, it, can be... it was the first day of summer vacation. You guys know anything about a party here tonight? No, sir. It was a time they will never forget. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I thought he was cute. Oh, this... You thought he was cute? Then. Do you realize when he graduated, we were like three years old? If only they could remember it. Okay. So you're not going to go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. You going to be quarterback next year? I don't know. I might not even play. You're in need of a serious attitude adjustment, young man. Super dominant male in a 50s greaser uniform. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> the 50s were boring. The 60s rocked. The 70s, oh my God, they obviously suck. Dazed and confused, see it with a bud. Behind every good man, there's a woman. And that woman was Martha Washington, man. And every day George would come home, she'd have a big, fat bowl waiting for him, man, when he'd come in the door, man. She was a hip, a hip, hip lady, man. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Melissa Mertz, who is the author of All Right, All Right, All Right, The Oral History of Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. One of my favorite films I haven't really talked about on the show, other than maybe when we talked about American Graffiti. I always saw them as kind of uh, spiritual cousins. But definitely check out this interview. Check out the book, too. It is really good, and I hope that you enjoy this. And first off, I asked Ms. Meritz if she could tell me a little bit about her background. My first job in media was for a, an alternative weekly called City Pages in Minneapolis. I was hired as a music editor there. It was a really great place to work. And funnily enough, a lot of music writers now came from there. So it was a really good base to start from. So I went from there to Spin Magazine, where um, a lot of my predecessors at City Pages had worked, and went from there to Rolling Stone. I was at the LA Times for a little while. Um, I was a founding editor of Vulture, the New York Magazine site. Yeah, I've kind of hopped around to a bunch of different places. I was um, serving as a supervising producer for a short time on the HBO nightly news show Vice News Tonight. Um, so yeah, I've, I've kind of hopped around. Uh, mostly, though, focusing on pop culture and specifically about music and TV and film. How did the Days Confused Project enter your life? 
the initial question I came to with it was that I'd read an interview with Richard Linklater where he said that he wanted Dazed and Confused to be an anti-nostalgia movie. And I thought, wow, that's really funny because I can think of it being the ultimate nostalgia movie for so many people. And so many people that I know watch it again and again because they're nostalgic for high school or because they're nostalgic for the 1970s when it's set. Um, Or even now, it seems like people watch it in part because they're nostalgic for the 1990s. The first question that I wanted to answer was, how did this anti-nostalgia movie become the ultimate nostalgic movie for so many people? And what was your history with the film itself? Well, I saw it in the theater um, when I was just going into my first year of high school in Portland, Oregon. I've seen it many, many times since then. But I think when I watched it the first time, even though it's set in the 70s, it really seemed like it was a projection of my future. You know, I was just starting high school. And in my mind, it was like, wow, this is what it's going to be like for better or worse. I'd never done any of those things before. I'd never gone out, you know, to a keg party. I'd never um, hung out with upperclassmen, um, you know, driving around in a car all night. I'd never had any of those experiences. So I really saw it not as the past, but as the future. And I think that's one of the great things about this movie is that there's a real timeless element to it. Even though it's a period piece, it's not really about the 70s. It's really about a moment in your life. And that moment is high school. When did you decide to start writing about it? What year was that? So it was about two years ago. And before I, well, around the same time that I was putting the book proposal together, I cold emailed Richard Linklater (laughs) and uh, I basically told him, you know, this is what I think the book might be like. Um, I'd really love to interview you for it. Um, And he sent me back a really great email. You know, he waited a couple days um, and maybe like five days after I sent my email, he responded and his response was kind of like, look, I'm of two minds about this. You know, I'm kind of sick of talking talking about Dazed and Confused. I don't really understand why people think it's one of my best movies. I think it's middling at best. (laughs) You know, he said some kind of surprising things. But then toward the end of the email, he was kind of saying like, you know, have you read this interview that I did on it? And have you seen this documentary that this person did about it? And um, he was kind of starting to point me toward some research. Um, So he did agree to an interview. That's all I had at first. I didn't know how many times I was going to be able to interview him. And um, I got the deal, the book deal on that basis. But luckily, over the course of time, he let me interview him more and more, and I think became more open with me. I love that it's an oral history. And I've only read oral histories that are maybe five, six, ten pages at most. I've never read something as extensive as All Right, All Right, All Right. And I'm so curious what your process is, and especially because I'm seeing people commenting on previous comments. And I just, I want to know how you're exposing what people are saying to one another. So the first part of your question, why an oral history? I mean, I think part of me thought, well, the movie is so conversational. It's not really about like, you know, an arc of the narrative. It's really about the vibe of just being there when these people are talking to each other. And that's what Richard Linklater does best, right? Is just kind of being 
in these great conversations. Um, so I kind of wanted the tone of the book to match that. But also, I just have a fondness for oral histories politically, because I think so often when you're writing about a movie, it takes the form of, you know, there was this great visionary artist and, um, you know, he had this idea and then he executed this idea. And it's all this kind of great man narrative. And the reality is so much more complicated, right? It's like ideas are coming from all different sources and people are helping each other achieve that vision. And it's not just the famous people who are making the thing what it is, right? So I love the idea that um, you can put people's quotes side by side and Richard Linklater's ideas are right there alongside somebody who might have been an extra in the cast or somebody who was the DP or, you know, everyone kind of gets an equal voice, even though some people were more important to the project overall, if that makes sense. And in terms of the second part of your question, I interviewed about 150 people for this. Not everybody made it into the book, but I interviewed each of those people multiple times. And usually the first time I talked to people, I really just tried to be as quiet as possible and let them tell me the things that they remembered most vividly or, you know, the, the things that they thought hadn't been talked about enough about the movie um, and just let them talk. And then the second time I had more follow-up questions. And then usually the third time was when I started bringing up, you know, well, this person said this, what do you, how do you react to that? Um, and I do think the conflicts of memory are one of the best parts of the book. You know, somebody saying, oh, well, this guy smoked the most weed. And then that guy being like, no way, this guy smoked the most weed. <laughs> it's kind of fun hearing people react react to each other. Yeah, I was uh, rereading the part last night where people are talking about um, Sean Pickford, I think it is. And, um, Sean Andrews, yeah, who plays Pickford, yeah. Yes, thank you. And just uh, there was uh, one moment, I think it was Rory Cochran, is just like, I hope I'm not the only one that's saying this. <laughs> I think in some ways people told me what the structure of this book was going to be. Because during those initial interviews, certain topics came up over and over and over again whether I brought them up or not. And one of those topic, subjects was that everybody had the same thing to say about Sean Andrews. Everybody thought he was kind of a jerk. Everybody remembered him really negatively. So I knew that had to be part of the book. What were some of the most challenging bits of putting this book together? Knowing when to stop. <laughs> I mean, knowing when there's going to be diminishing returns of, you know, should I talk to somebody who's kind of far outside of the orbit? Like I, inter I ended up interviewing a lot of critics, movie critics. And then toward the end, even though those people were great interviews, I ended up cutting almost all of those people out of the book. I think I just wanted to stay as close to a first person perspective as possible and really get the people who were directly involved. But it's painful because I think I interviewed a lot of really smart people who didn't end up in the final version. At some point, you've got to cut it down. And I think my first draft was like 650 pages. And I knew it had to be a lot shorter than that. <laughs> you've got over 100 interviews. And just how do you keep all of those things straight and then edit them all together in such the way that you have? Because again, it flows so beautifully. From the very beginning, I didn't wait to write. Um, I think the, the moment after I did an interview, I came back and transcribed it. And, um, you know, the parts that you remember most vividly when someone asks you, how'd that interview go? And the first thing you want to tell them, I think, is the most important stuff to get down and put in the book right away. 
So I just started to map out, you know, these conversations that came up again and again, like things like Sean Andrews, that everybody had a story about Sean Andrews ended up being something that was very clear from the very beginning. So I just, you know, created a document where I had all the quotes about Sean Andrews. And, you know, the idea that um, shooting this movie felt like summer camp came up again and again because people talked about how really, you know, they were partying behind the scenes and really developing this chemistry with each other that felt real. Um, So there was, you know, a document that in the beginning was just called summer camp. (laughs) And I think it started to just come together that way that I was just listening to other people tell me what the most important parts of the story were. Reading your book, it was amazing that this film ever came together at all. Just all the different forces that seemed to want to not have this happen, even to the point of the cast being such a eclectic group of young people that were, it sounded like they were pretty out of control a lot of the times. I think a lot of what surprises me about this, um, because I came into it like you did, I was like, how does a movie like this get made? And especially, how does a movie get made from somebody who's not in Hollywood, who didn't work his way up through the system? How does someone like Richard Linklater, whose breakthrough movie cost $23,000, go to working immediately after that with Universal, who at the time were making Schindler's List and Jurassic Park and these multi, multi multi-million dollar movies? So it was really a specific time in history when studios were looking to work with indie directors on these, um, you know, low budget for a studio movies that were around six million dollars. And, you know, that never happens anymore. So Richard Linklater, a lot of it was timing. I think that this movie got made. And then with the cast, I think that's part of it. You know, you can't make a six billion dollar movie for Universal and have it all be major stars. So I think, you know, it was important to Richard Linklater to be working with real Austin kids who had a very natural vibe. And I think one of the reasons he was able to do that was just that the budget was smaller than a lot of the films that Universal was working on at the time. It's so fascinating to go back and rewatch the film and see how many familiar faces there are and then see how many roles of characters where it's like, I wonder whatever happened to that person because they put in great performances and then you never see them again. Yeah. And, you know, one of my favorite parts of this book is there's a chapter on what happened to everybody in the immediate aftermath of Dazed and Confused. Um, Some people really thought that this was going to be the movie that would launch them into becoming big stars. Some people who became big stars didn't realize at the time that this movie was going to be like that. Um, And a lot of it was luck. You know, you see that time, you see someone like, for instance, Anthony Rapp, who everybody thinks like, oh, immediately after that, he was in Rent and, you know, he was huge. That's not true. Like, Right after that, he went back and worked at Starbucks for a while. Like, you know, it didn't really make anybody immediately, not even McConaughey. It took McConaughey a little while, too. So I think it's really interesting how much of this is not just talent, but just pure luck and pure timing. I was really glad, by the way, that you spent the first part of the book looking at Slacker and how Slacker was made and that phenomenon. Because, again, that was another one that just blew the doors off with the first time I saw it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, it was really important to me to tell that story because it's such a different process. Like he was making that movie with his friends. There's like 10 people in the crew. 
Um, and there's like a hundred people on the cast, <laughs> you know, a lot of it was, um, improvisational in the beginning scripting part, even though he tightly scripted a lot of it by the end. Um, you know, they didn't even have licenses to shoot things in some parts It's just a real kind of punk, punk rock project. Um, and then you look at something like universal where it's like the crew is enormous and it's really this kind of like welcome to Hollywood movie for Richard Linklater for better or worse. It's the way that he learned how studios work, you know, it caused a lot of resentment for him and a lot of the people who had come from this indie world in Austin who needed to learn to adapt um, to the way that the studios ran things. So I thought I couldn't really talk about the troubles that Richard Linklater had on Dazed and Confused without talking about where he came from in this really freewheeling project that he had with Slacker. Were there anybody that you tried to reach that you couldn't actually reach? Because as you said, there are so many voices in this book. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that I wanted to reach that I couldn't. Um, but obviously the main ones are Mila Jovovich and Sean Andrews, um, who both declined, but through their representatives. So it's hard to tell, right? <laughs> I can't, I can't really speculate about what their reasons are. Um, and, you know, Sean Andrews publicist told me that he wasn't available in time for my deadline. So I'd been asking for about a year and a half. So, you know, these things are always worded the way that they are, um, for a reason. I assume, you know, that Mila and Sean just didn't have a great time on that movie from what I've heard from other people and probably don't prefer to be involved. Uh, But the one person who I do really feel sad about not getting is Jason O. Smith, who played Melvin in the movie. Um, I just tried my heart out. I mean, I tried getting in touch with his high school class that he graduated with. I tried getting in touch with his mother. Um, I tried getting in touch with everybody um, to try and find him and just couldn't track him down. So, you know, I I put my email address um, in the book, hoping that at some point he'll get in contact because I'd still really love to interview him. How has the book been received since it came out? I've always wondered, you know, when I started with this, I thought this is going to be really great for people who are super fans of this movie. But I didn't really think it would reach people outside of that. (laughs) To be totally honest, I've been really um, excited by the people who have told me that they might not be super fans of the movie, but that they really identified with, you know, the book being something about the creative process or about, you know, the way that you look back on your youth or a lot of other things that, um, you know, it feels broader, I think, to people than I thought it might. I didn't realize just how far the film had a reach because I, like you, I saw this theatrically when it came out and I loved it when it was out, but I had no idea just what a, uh, uh, I don't want to say cult because that doesn't feel like a right thing that the following that the film has. Yeah. I mean, so many people have told me that they've watched it a million times you know, over one summer when it was basically on in the background. Um, and this is coming up again and again and again, that it started to make me think like, can you still really call it a cult movie? Um, when so many people have told me, oh no, I've seen that movie more than anybody else. <laughs> what are you working on now? I'm working on a very different thing. (laughs) I'm working on something that's fiction. I have no idea whether it's going to work or not, uh, but I'm trying. (laughs) Are you still doing all the writing that you were doing before as far as the, all the different places that you've worked? People have reached out to me since this book has come out asking if I want to write for them. And I'm just, I'm definitely open to it. I'm just really bad at pitching. (laughs) 
Um, so I'd rather kind of work on my own stuff and really deep dive into something. Um, and if other people come to me with assignments, I definitely can get excited about them. Absolutely. But I'm just bad at taking time to pitch different publications. And I think right now I'm so deeply invested in this, you know, fictional project that I'm working on that I haven't really had the brain space to come up with good ideas. <laughs> I do. I do have another idea for um, a nonfiction book that might come after that, though. So I, I'm not I'm not taking nonfiction off the table at all. Well, Melissa Meritz, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Oh, thank you, Mike. And I really appreciate the questions that you asked. And that it seems like you are definitely a big fan of this movie, too, especially hearing that you uh, saw it in the theater when it was out. There's the few of us who did. 